This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic, we are going to discuss about the use of monoclonal antibody in COVID-19 infection. We are joined by two of our experts, Dr. Raymond Rezanobili, who is a professor of medicine and a consultant in infectious disease, and Dr. Ravi Ganesh, who is assistant professor of medicine and a consultant in the division of general internal medicine. Welcome, Ray, and welcome, Ravi. Thanks for having us. Ravi and Ray, we cannot thank you enough for the stellar work you have done in the Mayo Clinic and leading this mammoth job during COVID-19. As we have seen, we have walked through the journey for the last 10 to 11 months now where different therapies have come up. We have seen all of us struggle as a team, trying to look at the evidence. We had to learn on the fly, as I said. So it was all kinds of antiviral agents and then came the plasma therapy and now is the new sensation of monoclonal antibody therapy. I would like to ask, uh, just for our audience, just if you would review just briefly, how does a monoclonal antibody work in COVID-19 infection? So uh, monoclonal antibodies, so these are antibodies, uh, basically proteins that serve as an immune response to SARS-CoV-2. They are developed in the laboratory, patterned after an antibody that was isolated in a patient who have recovered from COVID-19 many, many months ago. And now these are monoclonal, which means they are the same copy of the same protein developed in the laboratory. And there are a few that are now available. And what these antibodies do is they bind to the spike protein. The spike protein is the part of the virus that attaches itself to the human cell. And once that is bound to an antibody, it prevents that virus from attaching to human cells, thereby preventing subsequent infection. So that's basically the reason uh, and the mechanism for its action. So as I understand, uh, Ray, we had the plasma therapy which was being given, but that did have some problems. We could not produce or get it as much as we needed for the number of patients who need to be treated. And then we didn't know the amount of antibodies in those plasma. So it could be high, low, medium, then neutralizing. So what you're saying is because this is created in the lab, we have a very precise estimation of the concentration of monoclonal antibody we can give. Is that correct in my understanding? That is correct. And there's been several doses that have been examined under clinical research from as low as 700 milligrams to as high as seven grams per infusion. And based on those ranging studies, we know how much to give. And that's the basis for the emergency use authorization for these products. This question is for either of you. Uh, In October, the two studies which came up back to back in uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which used slightly different types of monoclonal antibody. Could you just briefly summarize those studies for us? and what the results were of those studies. So there are two products that are available. Number one is called Bamlanivimab. So this is the product that was developed by Lilly and it was studied in about 450 patients comparing three different doses of Bamlanivimab compared that to placebo. 
And what the study had shown that the doses of bamlanibimab was able to reduce viral load at day seven compared to those who received placebo. And in secondary analysis, looking at the number of patients that ended up in the hospital or went to the emergency department for uh, medical evaluation, there is numerically lower number of patients who have received bamlanibimab who require those hospitalizations or uh, emergency department visits. Note that this is a very small study, so those differences did not even reach statistical significance. However, the other study called the cocktail of casirivimab, imdebimab, also showed the same thing, that the use of these monoclonal antibodies was basically associated with reduction in viral load during the first week of illness compared to those who received placebo. And similar to the bamlanimumab trial, the Regeneron cocktail also showed a lower number of medically attended visits for those who received the antibody products. And because of that, it served as the basis for the FDA to authorize its use for emergency use only in high-risk patient populations. By the viral load, you mean the amount of virus in the nasopharynx, is that correct? That, that is correct, yes. So what are the kinds of patients who can receive it. The patients who are in ICU and severely sick, monoclonal antibody is not for them. It is the other group of patients who are who have high risk, but they have mild to moderate symptoms and fall under that risk category. They are the patients whom you give this medication. Is that correct? When you think about um, how this therapy works, it's most effective before your body really mounts a response to the virus itself. What it does is it binds and inactivates. So in somebody early in infection, it's a great thing because it binds and activates. Your body never has to actually deal with it. For somebody late in infection where your body has its own immune response going, and this may be actually part of the problem, it's not going to give you a whole deal of benefit. Identifying the folks at highest risk and giving it to them up front in order to prevent admissions and medical escalations was the goal of the FDA's emergency use authorization. And they identified groups of people that worked out pretty well. Um, those over 65, those with diabetes, those with a BMI greater than 35, those who are immunocompromised, either from medications or inborn problems with the immune system, and those people over 55 with either cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, or chronic lung disease. And we've, we've stuck to that EUA that the FDA gave us, and these people have done pretty well. So we do have a list of whole range of diseases, age categories, and these are all handed out. You can, you can fill it in a computer chart and identify what risk category the patients are and will they be benefited by this yeah. at all. So what are the kind of patients like those who have mild and moderate that you will not consider giving them monoclonal at all? Those are the young ones like a 35-year-old with no medical comorbidity, for example, they won't qualify for this product. Like those with no medical conditions that increases the risk for severe COVID complications, then these products are not for them. So let me get it from the math that we were given, like 80% of patients have mild to moderate symptoms and they don't need to come to the hospital. They can be managed as an outpatient. And out of the 20% of patients who get admitted, 5% are in the ICU. And again, they are probably not the candidate to get this monoclonal 
and 15% are moderately sick whom we think this will help. But out of the 80%, how big would be the need? I'm just trying to figure out how much monoclonal antibody would you need to generate? It's not like vaccination where everybody needs to be vaccinated like we're talking about. So what would be a rough idea, this risk category, what would that lead to? Would it be 10% of patients, 20% of patients who would need monoclonal? So it's, it's higher than you would think because BMI greater than 35 being a characteristic that allows you to receive the monoclonal antibody, that puts 30% of the American population into that category. So it's, it's actually a fairly high number. So you do need a lot of, lot of monoclonal and that's, that's great to know. Uh, what has been our Mayo Clinic experience of monoclonal? How many have we given till now? I've, I've seen different numbers. Uh, I saw a number of over 3,000 mm -hmm. um, reported last week. Yep. So we started infusing since November 19. So that was the first dose that was infused in the Midwest uh, Rochester site. That was the day after we received the allocation from the federal government. And ever since then, we've averaged on roughly about maybe 50 patients a day across the enterprise. So that includes our sites in Wisconsin, several sites here in Minnesota, as well as our southern sites in Arizona and Florida. And it's roughly at around 4,000 now is the number of patients that we've infused uh, since we started the program. I understand the monoclonal antibody can be considered as an antiviral agent. And it just adds to the, all the other antiviral agents which we have. Now, there's a difference between the other antiviral agents which can be given in the hospital or you take mm -hmm. a tablet. This poses some logistic challenges. And so how has the journey been of solving some of the logistic challenges of administering monoclonal to this patient? That's, that's actually been a really interesting and fun journey because you know we've kind of seen the, the innovations that our team comes up with. First of all, for a regular infusion therapy center for monoclonal antibodies for COVID patients, first of all, you have to set up the infusion center. And this has to be separate from your regular infusion center because you can't have COVID positive patients in the same spot as folks who are getting chemotherapy, for example, because that would be a bad mix. For infection control, you need a dedicated entrance and exit to minimize infection risk. And then you need the capacity to monitor folks post-infusion. So an infusion would take an hour plus and then an hour after. So the throughput of any given infusion center is, is limited. And we had our staff set up infusion centers in Rochester, Albert Lee, uh, Red Wing, Mankato, Northwest Wisconsin, and Southwest Wisconsin pretty rapidly within a week. And this was a tremendous coordinated effort that the clinic put on. The Flip side, as you mentioned, though, is that not everyone's able to come in. And for the folks who can't come in to our infusion service centers, we tried our best to figure out how to help them. And this was honestly one of the things I'm the proudest of with our infusion effort is that we created a mobile unit to go to nursing homes. And this took a team of nurses that took a Mayo Clinic fleet vehicle and mobile infusion equipment and they went to nursing homes that we had identified patients at, and they gave the infusions, monitored them there. And this really seems to have reduced the risk and the escalation of these patients to the hospital setting. The biggest hurdle really is for patients 
to seek the drug. They don't know what these drugs are. They're not aware of this uh, availability of, of potentially getting treatment with monoclonal antibody. And that's been one of, I think, major hurdles as to why this is not widely available and not widely sought after, just because patients are not educated about this drug. So what we do is we actually proactively seek out to them. So we have a process that identifies all eligible patients daily. And then what we do is we don't wait for them to call us. We call them and educate them about these products and offer them the therapy if this is something that they would like to consider. That's Mayo Clinic doing what Mayo Clinic does well is go seek out. But I think from the education part of it, what I'm hearing both of you say is, first of all is if you have the symptom, go and get tested. Because there is a window during which period this medication has to be given. Can you talk about the window when this is efficacious? So you have to get tested and then make the call. You have to make the call if you know it's positive or sometimes the health systems calls you, understanding that they probably have a similar system like Mayo Clinic. So what is the window of time during which all these things have to happen? So the eligibility criteria for this for mild to moderate disease is you have to infuse them within 10 days of the symptom onset. So not at the time of testing, but it has to be from the time they start to develop symptoms. And it goes back to your point, they have to be tested really early. We don't know what the turnaround is for this, some of the testing that's being done in other parts of the country, but the sooner the patients are tested and the sooner the results are available, then that basically is the best for patients to get the antibody therapy because our experience suggests that the sooner you give it, the better the outcome. So are there any group of patients where if I'm exposed to somebody with COVID-19, I'm at high risk. Are there any situation where this can be given prophylactically, where I don't test positive, but I'm exposed to somebody? What would be that characteristics of those patients or group of patients? Unfortunately, that is not yet allowed based on the emergency use authorization criteria. So the EUA only allows us to give the drug for those that are already positive, as well as having mild to moderate symptoms. The scenario that you describe is under study. There is a study that's being done in nursing home facilities, for example, where a resident of a nursing home turns positive then the staff as well as the other residents in that facility will be given a chance to participate in a randomized controlled trial. Some will be given monoclonal antibodies, the others will be given placebo. And there is some evidence based on press release with results not yet peer reviewed that that is potentially an effective mechanism to prevent the spread of infection. But it's not yet approved for that indication as per the um, FDA. To add to that, there's a second um, study ongoing with home contacts from Regeneron, and so far so good in their interim analysis, um, 186 patients with no transmission as of yet. I can imagine you're already saying that almost 30% of the patients who test positive would be eligible for the monoclonal, and you expand that pool for prophylaxis mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to be a much larger pool and the expenses and everything else, but that's for topic for another day. But I've also read about some of the innovations which have come up. Uh, this is an infusion. You have to go and, you know, you have to go to a center, stay there for an hour and a half, as you say, get infused. They're talking about a subcutaneous injection mm -hmm. or an intramuscular injection. Can you tell something more about 
what that process is? Yeah, whenever we give something by sub-Q or intramuscular, for example, it prolongs the half-life. But again, this is also something that's also being tested for monoclonal antibodies, but it's not yet approved or authorized for use. So those are only under research uh, protocols at this time. But that was the uh, main reason for that is, is it effective and does it extend the period of protection? When you're thinking about it, would that be in a situation where you're trying to prevent the illness or for somebody exposed, or would it be to manage somebody who has COVID positive? It's probably for prevention is what I would think, because for treatment of active disease, you want at high levels really quickly. And I think the intravenous route is probably the best for that. But for prophylaxis, maybe the sub-Q route wherein the amount of product that is present in the circulation is released at a slower pace, but these are still being studied at this time. Since it's in a monoclonal and it's raged in a lab, and once we inject that, there could be some resistance mm -hmm. uh, production. Is there any method of contracting the resistance to these antibodies? So whenever you give something, whether it's monoclonal antibody or a simple antibiotic, the target will try to resist that by developing some sort of mutations in uh, the sites where these products act. Same thing for monoclonal antibodies, wherein the virus may mutate part of the spike that the monoclonals are attaching to, and that may reduce the efficacy of the monoclonal antibodies in those situations. And the mechanism to counteract that is to combine different monoclonals. For example, the Regeneron product is two different non-competing monoclonal antibodies. And then for the bamlanibimab from LA Lilly, uh, it is now paired with another product that just got EUA approval this week called etesevimab. And those are combined monoclonal antibodies that act on different parts of the spike protein. I think you need to go to graduate school just to know how to pronounce these medications. I cannot even oh. pronounce them. <laughs> so, so fancy name. I don't know how they come up with these names, and these are tough names. Uh, I like the, the brief versions of it, but what are the lessons learned from our experience since November? Uh, we learned about teamwork. We learned about uh, massive structure, which is left. We also learned about the heart of the people who, like you, are working 24-7 to make this happen. But what are the lessons we are learning from your journey with treatment, with management, with coordination, which seems to be something on a war footing that none of us have learned and none of us have seen this. And what are the lessons which we can take going forward? One of the lessons we learned early was we came face to face with people's misinformation and lack of understanding of what the medications could do. And we also came face to face with the the uncomfortableness with the idea of a experimental medication because it's still considered experimental right now. So we had a lot of iterations of changing the nursing script and the education to make it more clear to patients what we know about the medication. We updated week after week as we got more experience with it and we found that we had better turnout for patients after that. And it, it really helped when the local experience grew with it, when patients were reporting they felt better and we had the occasional news story here and there of, of somebody who did well with it. And that really helped. But 
one of the lessons I learned that it's, it's not just what the physician says to the patient, it's what the patient gets from the nurses, the community, the greater understanding of what we're doing. And it, it's, it's kind of humbling to you know, realize that you're not the authority on many things here. No, I, I think Ravi, you, you do bring a very important part about the communication as to who is the stakeholder, uh, stakeholder is the patient. And even though we have the best of the science, the science is coming so fast, so rapidly, and so variable. It is pushed first through the press and the TV, and then the doctors and the nurses have to carry it. Patients are extremely confused. So uh, giving them the time and the space and different ways of communication, different ways of presenting the data, it's all been a very tough, tough journey for patients and us together. So just because you're also demonstrating that just because you have a treatment doesn't mean people are going to buy into it until unless they are convinced. It's just like any innovation where somebody is just, they jump on it and they are, they are the early adopters or they're going to just uh, take it and others are going to see how others have done. And then they're the late adopters and they're going to start hopefully accepting the treatment and hopefully that is, that's been a lesson. And after that, the logistic challenge you mentioned itself after having to convince somebody to have a place to get the infusion and to bring them there or go to the nursing homes and give. These are all huge, huge challenges. So I, I really commend both of you for your work, for what you're doing. Does it mean that now for future, for any kind of disease process, uh, we are attacking it from the antiviral, from the medication standpoint, which is working at the virus level, at the attachment level of the virus, at the replication level, and now having these kind of treatment of monoclonal. So we seem to have a lot of different types of treatments now. Mm -hmm. What would be the next line of attack? Or is this all that we have learned? No, I think you can use the lessons learned here, uh, including how to make monoclonal antibodies on a big scale and how this is useful for certain types of infection. This is something that we've struggled in the field of infectious diseases for decades. But the... COVID pandemic, just because of the volume of patients that we see, uh, made that really prominently in terms of efficacy that this is something that works if done properly. If I may uh, go back to what Ravi was saying earlier too about you know health disparities, this is something that is also brought forward by our experience. We've learned characteristics of people who will decline the infusion just because of some cultural background and, and things like that. So those are the things that we are also uh, facing to kind of improve, just to make sure that the therapies are as equitable to as many people as possible. That's right. If anything, COVID has really exposed the health disparity mm -hmm. and uh, how there are pockets of uh, our own brothers and sisters who living in the so-called land of plenty still don't have access or don't have the right tools or they have misinformation. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest learning experience for all of us. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, we have covered in our previous podcast how the health disparity issue is being dealt with uh, during COVID and probably that will help in all other areas. The one last thing I would like to say is the inertia of physicians and the information overload that sometimes this does not even come in their mind to advise their patients. And we are fortunate that we have somebody like Ravi and you here. We have a COVID frontline care team where 
the input of data comes and you can call them up and analyze it. How do we get our physicians, colleagues and nursing colleagues to even uh, say, well, this is there and this is, sometimes it does not come to their mind. One of the things that tends to work better is when groups post guidelines to recommend or uh, decline against a product. And I think that one of the things that happened with the monoclonal antibodies is that the sample sizes in the initial studies were not large and the effect size wasn't large. So it was very difficult for a group to make a, a decision. Our hope is that with the adequate data that we're pushing out now from all the different regions that have been doing this, that becomes part of guidelines and then it'll be rapidly uptaken, I would believe, by most societies. This is something you can say, well, we don't want to tell the data. 4,000 infusions, much more than the two New England Journal publications which came out. Is there any hot press on how we are doing with these infusions? I'm sure there's a publication coming up and you're probably locked in. Just, just an average ballpark. We are locked in. It's good outcomes. Let's just put it that way. Uh, in terms of hospitalizations as well as mortality benefit, I can say that because I'm not providing too much details, but uh, I'm saying it just to advise folks who's listening that this is something that works and that it should be given to patients who need it. Right. And that's going to be the most important data. That is what the, when the rubber meets the road, when mm -hmm. it's done in the very clinical situation, randomized trials and all that, uh, you seem to have reports which are people might get great results, but when it is done in the practice setting, infusion center on a daily basis, 4,000 patients, it might go even higher. Your data is going to be more reliable to understand what is happening at, the, at just the ground level. So with that, I think we'll end our episode today. We thank uh, Dr. Razanabole and Dr. Ravi Ganesh for this segment on talking about the monoclonal antibody use in COVID-19 infection. Thank you for your time, Ray and Ravi, and we are really grateful for all the work you're doing. Uh, for our viewers, if you enjoyed the podcast today, please subscribe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back next week.